welcome to the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. For those of you who don't know, GTFO means get the F out. In this podcast, we will be discussing how to get the F out. How to get the F out of a bad situation, predicament, or something you want to flat change. I'll be interviewing individuals who have had to GTFO. Expect to hear stories of those who experience situations of despair, pain, and fear. And the only way to escape it was to GTFO. Through this podcast, I want to give you, the listeners, the power and courage to make life changes should you need to GTFO. A year ago in October, I had the pleasure of interviewing award-winning playwright and domestic violence survivor Jennifer Blue. She was able to share with us her personal story of domestic violence, how she persevered, and how her life experience led to writing her play, Easier Said Than Done. This year, again in the month of October, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I've decided to interview yet another survivor who happens to be a dear friend of mine here in Dallas, Texas. I'm choosing to help her get her story out as well because her stories and others must be heard, not only because of their past, but because of the rise in domestic violence today. In the last 18 months, not surprisingly, domestic violence rates have increased, which is why it is important for us to continue to have this conversation and empower those who need a voice. Here are some recent statistics for you. A recent study from the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice notes that domestic violence incidents increased 8.1% nationwide after jurisdictions imposed pandemic-related lockdown orders. According to the Pegasus Institute in July of 2021, during the initial months of lockdown, many domestic violence organizations reported shorter, more frantic calls. Others reported eerily silent lines due to victims lacking privacy to call. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by a partner in the U.S. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe partner physical violence. And lastly, in a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. And in case you need it or know someone who does, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. Again, that number is 800-799-7233. Now, more about my guest today, the amazing Linnell Renfro. Linnell was born and raised in Iowa, but she always had big city dreams. Those dreams started to come into reality after relocating to Dallas in 2001, where she started out working in various corporations in the accounting field. By the time she was 30, she realized she never truly lived or knew what she wanted out of life. After some spiritual sharpening, counseling, and self-discovery, she realized her past was riddled with domestic violence, family violence, and what she calls stranger dangers. She realized they were a part of a disconnection that she had with her most powerful attributes. Her inability to process residual emotions carried over and impaired important decision-making. She needed healing on a deeper level and continued seeking assistance to work through her own pains while serving others. Today, her plate is full doing what she loves to do. After freelance writing for local Dallas Magazine publications, she launched her own event planning and multimedia company called Divine Events and has had the privilege of working with the Steve and Marjorie Harvey Foundation, Rehab Masters, Five Made Men, and more. Linnell's direct exposure to domestic domestic violence led her to join the board of directors as VP of Public Relations for We Are Survivors Foundation. We Are Survivors, Crusades for Domestic and Family Violence, and resonated with her firsthand as she is a survivor. Alongside her foundation family, she speaks to youth at various schools, participates in support groups, and local events to help spread the word on everything the foundation offers. As a radio TV personality, she uses her voice on the foundation talk show and has her own podcast, Life is Potpourri, and it broadcasts on PowerPlay Podcast TV. La Nell, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been really looking forward to this episode with you. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, anytime. Well, before we get into our content today, I want to talk to the listeners about how we know each other. How do we know each other? Okay, yeah. (laughs) Well, we know each other through some mutuals. Um, Victoria, who is um, a personal trainer, here in the DFW area. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I believe a beautiful, um, let me see, who else? Do we, I think we have another in common. Is it Laura? No. We have a couple in common. We do. We do. But Victoria comes to mind right off top. So, <laughs> Well, I'm thankful for her introduction because her introduction has led us to a, a wonderful friendship. So I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It definitely has. Yes, definitely. I'm really looking forward to you telling your story today because we have a lot to talk about. But before we do that, will you please give us a little background on yourself? I certainly will. So my name is Lanelle Renfro. I am originally from Iowa. I've been in Dallas for 19 years now. Uh, so I just feel like I'm a Texan. I'll just throw that out there. I don't know if I sound any different when I go home, but <laughs> I'm hoping I picked up a little. You sound Texas. normal to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah, hoping I picked up a little bit of that Texas swag. Uh, but I am a mother of two grown children who are absolutely fabulous, have their own family families. I am, oh gosh, a business owner. I just, I don't even want to get into all of my hats that I wear, but I will start by saying that I work with, um, we are Survivors Foundation who crusades for domestic and family violence. And October is um, Domestic Family Awareness, I'm sorry, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I'm just tongue-tied all of a sudden. So um, I'm definitely glad to be talking to you today to help spread the word on on that and, um, you know, kind of dive into some of the detriment of that. Right. That's why I'm thrilled to tell your story today, because people need to hear it, um, because there's a rise in domestic violence and uh, mm-hmm. it's not it's not going away. It's not going away. And I know that when people hear your story, they will feel inspired to help themselves or help others out of the same situation. So I hope so. I hope so. Because there's so many people out here who uh, actually need help. I know. And the signs are there. But oftentimes we're kind of just, um, you know, we're engaged in our own lives and I can respect that, you know, but then there are the others kind of with the blind eye, you know, just looking the other direction. So hopefully my story mm-hmm. will inspire others to get involved where they can safely. It will for sure, because it's a tremendous story. So um you mentioned you're from Iowa, and that's kind of where things really got started for you. Will you start us down your path with your home life growing up in Iowa and where and how domestic <laughs> violence began for you? Yes, I will. Um, I grew up, like like I said earlier, in Iowa, which is obviously, you know, for those of you who've seen it on the map, you know that it's very tiny little space. It's a very rural and oftentimes um, relationships just, people just get into relationships without a lot of discussion about it. You know, you're young, you're hanging out with that local boy, pretty soon you're into things that you probably shouldn't, you know, getting physical, different things like that. You, you end up getting pregnant and now you're in a relationship. So there's actually been a lot of people that I can say that I know personally who have dealt with domestic violence or some sort of violence. And I think that that's a little bit of a trend for the way these relationships get started with some of the people we've encountered. But I will start by saying that my first experiences with domestic violence were watching my mother deal with it at the hands of a stepfather. And he had a drinking problem. He worked for the railroad. And I just remember, you know, I don't remember a lot of arguments between them, but I do remember The first time, you know, he hit her, I do remember some nights where he, you know, would just be, he just do weird and erratic things. Like one night he came home and she didn't cook what he wanted to have for dinner. So he took the the cushions off of the couch and put them on the stove and turned them on. Um, He just, you know, he was just kind of a scary, you know, scary person when I did see him in those moments, but I don't know when they started. So I never, you know, I always wondered, was that just a behind closed doors type situation? And it just spilled over, which it, you know, eventually does. Sure, sure. Um, I just can't imagine wanting to throw cushions on the stove. Just disruptive. Yeah, I have no idea what his thought process even could have, I mean, could have been like, you know, at that time, because I was eight. You know, I, I recall being eight. I had a, a sister in the home, have a sister that was in the home. She was five. And I remember that he came home 
one night and my mother ironically worked for a shelter for battered women and children. So that's the ironicy in some of this because I still don't know where her mindset was at that particular time as well. As strong as I know her to be, to not be one, you know, that just said, okay, I've gone through this at his hands. Let me take my kids and go. But it would literally take until it spilled over and um, the, the violence affected my sister that my mother would actually open her eyes and now realize just what kind of danger we were in. One night while she was at work and I just remember waking up in my bedroom and the light was on, but we had old, that old wood paneling that we all love from back in the day, yep. you know, in the room. And so I was, I was placed or I was very close to the wall. That's what I remember. I, I don't know, I guess at some point if I was pushed up to the wall, but I could speculate so because I was very much, my whole body was in line with it, like pushed up completely close to it. So in my mind, I'm thinking I was pushed up there, placed there sometime during the time I was sleeping. But when I opened my eyes, I couldn't focus. And I realized that I was that close to the wall. And I'm realizing that the light is on and I can't really make out what I'm hearing, but I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to wake up and get my equilibrium about myself. So I went to try to roll over and felt the hand, a hand pushed me back over to the wall kind of forcefully. And now I'm, I'm a bit startled now. I'm, you know, I'm waking more and more and I tried to roll over again, same, you know, same reaction. And then the final time that I think that I tried to turn over to see what was going on in my room, I don't remember anything after that point. I don't, I mean, it's just like a black hole. So I, I know that I wasn't a, I guess I, I don't know what happened. So I'm not even going to say that. I was going to kind of start right. speculating what I thought was happening in that time frame. But I do remember waking up the next morning, the light was coming in through the window. So I obviously recognized that there was a different type of light. I was still kind of terrified to, to roll over after the responses I had gotten in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And now though, when I focus in on my hearing, it's my mother. And she's crying. She's kind of, she's wailing. She's, it's kind of like from like an anguish, you know, like a, from Mm -hmm. the soul type of anguish. And now I'm like, okay, I'm trying to roll over. Should I roll over? You know, but I go ahead and do that. And I look down on the floor and she's sitting there cradling my sister. Um, Mm -hmm. There was vomit all over the room. And so the smell was the next thing that I, that hit me once I realized what I was looking at. And he had pretty much beat my sister up a bit. He had um, used some type of metal object on the meat of her thigh, Mm. near her buttock, on the side of her buttock, and um, forcefully tore skin. And uh, I just, I think I, even at eight, I kind of clocked out that I was so angry. I instantly became so, so angry. And then at the same time, I'm trying to process all of this. I realized I didn't protect my sister. I didn't think about the fact I couldn't. I just knew I didn't. Right. And I could, I could imagine that feeling because Mm -hmm. looking back at the situation, she was vulnerable and you were there. I'm a big sister too. So I would have felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, after that, you know, I, I remember the ambulance showing up, picking her up. I don't know where he was in that interim. I do remember, and my mom, my mom, I mean, she's got a little bit of a bulldog spirit <laughs> she's yeah. like, even now. And so again, I don't know if that was the turning point, but I did see her rage at that point. And I even thought maybe I'd lose her, you know, through legal because she did take revenge um, we had left and gone to the house and I don't know if it was, it was planned or it was a quick thinking type situation on her part, or she just went into autopilot. But I remember us going back to the house where she wanting to go and I didn't want her to go alone. Um, so I told her, you know, mom, take me with you. Obviously we're going to go get these clothes and whatever else we need, assuming he's not home or just even around. And he showed, he showed up there. And so I remember hiding behind um, behind something in the living room and she was behind, kind of behind the door, but on the same side of 
the room that she was on was this memorabilia. Like he was on the railroad, so he would pick up, you know, odd things like these big, I guess they would be stakes or something look like, you know, big nails, some sort of things that they used to keep the railroad, you know, the tracks together. And then there was this chain link. I mean, it had humongous chain uh, chain link and it had um, like a T-style handle on one end where you could just slide your hand yeah. right up in there. And yeah. he had arranged these things on the wall. And it, I mean, it was pretty decent, I guess. My mom didn't take it down. <laughs> he had his little collage, his little art wall. And she, next thing I know, she just ripped it off the wall and just hits him square across his forehead. Oh. And this so, is in front of you uh, and your sister, in front of both of you? No, my sister is not there. My okay. sister at that point was in the hospital. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, they did keep her, you know, just kind of okay. for some observations and yeah. different things like that. And I, um, she, I think she just blacked out because when she came to, she jumped on him and, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, oh my God. And I think it was because she realized the damage, you know, now we can't lose you behind wanting to really just kill him. You know, even though, so. That's kind of a thing. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. And so after that, I just don't know what happened to him. Honestly, I just knew that the hatred for him was real, you know, and we did run. Matter of fact, I'm sorry. We did run into him a little while after that, a couple of times. And it wasn't in the same city. It was in a whole other city when we would go visit friends and just random. And I, every time I would just glare, just glare at him. Like if I could have killed him with my own hands, I probably would have tried. <laughs> and that's just right. being honest. Right. I understand that. Yeah. L- looking back to that age, mm-hmm. do you remember how you processed this back then? And did your mother how did she explain this to you? My mother has been scarred numerous times in relationship. I think that she, her want for love after a while became a pattern of abusive relationships, Mm -hmm. you know, just moving too fast. Um, She didn't have the proper mothering of her own. And she just oftentimes found herself in these, these positions in these relationships. So I don't know that we ever honestly really until much later, like I'm much older now, you know, we, we, we brush on it, but we still have never really had a complete conversation about that time. And I know that it's affected my sister greatly. You know, I can, I can see that even in how her relationships panned out over time as well. Right. Right. And back then, they didn't talk about this kind of stuff. There mm-hmm. was no domestic violence <laughs> awareness month. That was, the, that was information you swept under the rug or you just didn't mm-hmm. address again. I mean, it, what was it, the 70s? 70s? Early mm-hmm. 80s? Early, or, yeah, yeah. Early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's hard to navigate that as you grow up when you don't have a real explanation or you don't feel like you have a support system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you experienced at that young age. So I just, I wanted to ask that because I kind of wanted to know how your next years were shaped because of this incident. Um, so how, how did this event impact you as you became a preteen and a teenager? What happened next in your life? So this, I think this particular incident it was it was easier for me to file away once this individual passed away. Um, he did just naturally pass away. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like it was just buried away with him. And because it wasn't a direct it wasn't a direct physical hit to myself, I never I never forgot that it happened because it caused other scars you know, um, inadequacy in me, like I said, because I wanted to protect my sister and felt like I couldn't. So over the years, I knew I had developed a save the world mindset because of that, which was something later, much later in years, you know, after going through some other things. But let me roll back into your your question. In my my preteens, once he passed away, it just got swept under. And I'm sure that I had a little bit of a 
skewed sense of love as well. Watching my mother filter through other relationships where she hoped to have better. They didn't necessarily, these other relationships didn't necessarily come for her on a physically damaging note, but a lot of manipulation, you know, a a lot of narcissism and different things um, like that. Love started also becoming skewed as I got older and developed, started developing. I would start to find that other men in our community who were labeled as family friends would start acting different towards me and, um, you know, maybe looking at me some sort of way or trying to touch me. Ugh, I'm a little nauseous right now because I can totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That, that just kind of added to, yeah, yeah that added to Look. the nonsense. Uh-huh. <laughs> it really did. Um, but it added to, added to all of that. And it made me feel insecure for, de- to, for developing you know, that these people who were set in place and supposed to be my protectors, maybe when my parents were out of eyesight, were now looking at me different, maybe brushing up against me when my parents weren't looking and just doing these other, you know, weird things. And I started taking note that I'm becoming a young lady, you know, and they're doing these things because I'm budding in areas. So it made me insecure. You know, it added to other insecurities I already had quite naturally as a kid, like being too tall and taller than everybody else. But this added a different type of insecurity because I was developing into a young lady. Yes. I had known that when I finally, I went to one of my aunts to talk to her about a situation with, with her husband and how he groped my leg, it turned into a thing of where it was almost my fault that he groped my leg. So... Between that, another, a different aunt. Now, mind you, my mom comes from eight, eight, nine siblings. They're all women. So this is, it gives you an idea of how many various men as different relationships change over time. Yeah. How many different people I could be exposed to. Right. Just over time. And yeah, after a while, there, there was more than one incident. I had another so-called uncle or family friend. I was sleeping at my aunt's house and woke up to him trying to press his hand between my legs from behind. Yeah. And I, by that time, I was about 15. So with this particular aunt, I think by then it had happened to me so many times in one way, shape or form that I really was like, he didn't win and swept it under the rug. Because at that point, I had already told one aunt the possibilities, and she didn't believe it. So what would be the point of bringing it up? Well, that that trains you to not say anything at all. Because like you said, that the other aunt didn't want to hear it, wanted to sweep it under the rug. So as a kid, you're like, why say anything? I mean, just, you know. Yeah. It's, um, I'm sorry, I was just having a a thought backwards. Like, wow, like this. Because, yeah, by then it had happened just one too many times. I think in my mind, I, if they didn't get the prize, if they, if they, if you know what I mean, was yeah. being too explicit? No, I know what you mean. <laughs> I felt like I won and I just would tuck it away and keep it moving. And this, you know, I never wanted to hurt any of my relatives or, you know, any of them at all with any kind of news like this. And you know how you have your, not well, your favorite aunts. I'm going to say that you have that one aunt that just you know, let you do whatever you want. You have your, yeah. This was my favorite aunt, so I really didn't want her to know that this is what happened, um, or want her feelings hurt. So you that. didn't tell her. You didn't say anything. I, I never said anything, and it's all coming out, which is going to be interesting. I have a book coming out in January. Yes, I'm very excited about that. I and I'm, am, and I'm very proud of you for telling the story. You. Yeah, I really thank am. you. I know. Thank you. I appreciate that. I had to come to terms with some things. It wasn't about exposing them per se, more of an empowerment. Like these are the things you can go through, you know, and still come out a different person. Right. So, yeah. Right. Because your brain was being trained at a young age that certain things were acceptable when they really Mm -hmm. were not. They were not. And I understand that. I understand that point, And it would be hard to break out of that when you realize those were not the right things that were supposed to happen to you. We had family mm-hmm. friends that stared too long, 
you know, or got too close. And I remember thinking as a child, like, I'm supposed to trust this person. Mm -hmm. But now I feel like I've kind of been invaded, if you will. My privacy has been invaded, but I don't know what to do with this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like you were saying in our pre-interview is stranger danger. I had never heard that term before. Yes. Yes. I, um, I had experienced a stranger danger in between these uncles. And obviously to that point, I was 30 when this happened, when this particular incident happened. So in between that would be my first experience directly with domestic um, violence. I had gotten myself into a relationship with a man who was 10 years older than me. And he had come from another another city, state mm-hmm. nearby, mm-hmm. you know, being from this small place in Iowa, we didn't have a lot, you know, like we knew everybody, we grew up with everybody type of thing. So yeah. we oftentimes <laughs> definitely needed to look outside of our area. And on this day, I wasn't looking. He actually more so pulled into the store, pulled in, you know, and came into the store that I was in and walks right up to me and says, oh, well, you're Linnell. And I said, I am. And he said, well, now I understand why such and such wouldn't introduce us because you're beautiful. And he told me that there was only a handful of beautiful girls in this city. And I was a little bit flattered. I'm 16 at this point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I wasn't thinking, thinking really too much of it. Just like, oh my gosh, you know, and he, I knew the family uh, that he had there, knew he wasn't from there though, made it that much more exciting. And, um, he was the first male to shower me, you know, like take me out to dinners and lunches and buy me things. And this is that and other, and, and just take care of me overall. He love bombed you. He love bombed. He love bombed you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so at that point, I, you know, we start this relationship. We're doing fine seemingly, but I remember the first time he pushed me. And I can't remember even what was happening at the time, but when he pushed me, you know, a, a little light bulb did go off for me, but he quickly was like, oh, I'm sorry. I, and, you know, we just kind of, okay, well, maybe certainly he didn't mean for that to happen. And, you know, we, I think he was getting into a little bit of an argument with someone and I try to kind of grab him back and he, that's when he pushed me really hard. And so I just chalked that up to him being in a heated moment, you know, as a lady, you shouldn't have got in it. And I just kept it moving. Uh-huh. Well, little did I know that he had a drug, he had a drug history. And so eventually that started to rear its ugly head. And I started questioning him about his whereabouts from time to time because he would be going missing. You know, he'd be missing from days um, here and there. And um, I was stepping out of line in questioning him. So I'll never forget the first time that he just hauled off and really just punched me in my mouth. Well, at this point, I'm pregnant. We're living alone, you know, living off, doing our own thing, trying to build a family. But you've been missing for two days in a blizz, you know, snow, snow weather, like Iowa blizzards, you know, like snow right. weather. So I'm concerned about you and you punched me in my mouth. Well, this same individual would take me out of state to his home state and disappear I mean, we, he wouldn't get me and now our daughter on the steps good before he would dump our baggage and just hit, hit the road, you know? And so then that became a thing. And this was over several trips, stealing my money. So I couldn't go do things with it. That's financial abuse, you know, the mental abuse abuse of, of constantly crying when they're caught up or they're sorry, or they know that you've gotten fed up, you know, the manipulation of it all. Yes. Yes. The control, you know, he sent me into a house that was pretty much, I guess, for no, you know, lack of better words, a trap house. It was a trap, you know, it was a trap house. And he sent me in there to get something for him. Didn't tell me per se what I was going in there for, but basically sent me into the lion's den. And I walk in and little to no furniture. These guys are sitting there looking like, you know, kind of got that thuggish look to them. And they're sizing me up like I'm the next best snack. Uh-oh. So who's to say what would have happened to me in there if one of his siblings, who was an avid user, hadn't walked in there and gasped 
because I was standing there. It's yeah, with this one, I've I got to experience all of the levels, all right. of the levels of abuse. Um, I knew that I needed to get away from him and finally just started. I didn't allow this to be more than I think three years of my life that I was like, I've got to get out of here. I'm going to take my baby and just plotting and planning on the best thing to do when I could get back to Iowa on one of the trips that we were on when he had admitted giving his wedding band away to, to a dope deal. Right. And I just knew that there was no limit. And when I get home, I need to get back home. I'm getting away from this person. What was your GTFO moment? Was it the ring? Was it the drug house? Like at what point did you go, I got to get the F out of here. This is not good for me. This is not good for my daughter. Because abuse Mm -hmm. is kind of tricky like that. Like you said, there's different levels. Mm -hmm. They start here, an accidental push. Then it's uh, a hit because they're upset about what you told them. Mm-hmm. And it's a little confusing when they do use manipulation and crying and oh, I'm so sorry, baby. And you kind of feel like it's you. It's kind of a cycle. I, so at what point did you go, uh-uh, no more? It is. It is kind of a cycle. And I think with each time, I think honestly with each time, your eyebrows go up just a little bit more. Yep. That's a good but way. what to- let me know, and I'm sorry, what let me know that I needed to really like not only leave my hometown, but leave the state, like just... I'm sorry, leave the state if need be, was in trying to get away from him in other places that I would be hiding out in the city, he would be showing up there. He would be showing up there. So I think all of the instances that started out, you know, little small things on these trips where the money, my money would come up. missing, And he, 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 I didn't know that he was taking it. This was all confessed to me by someone who later, years later, They had been running off doing the drugs together. She finally decided she wanted to tell me. So the first couple of times the money came up missing, we're we're out of town visiting in a house and there's probably four of the relatives. I mean, you know, you can't really pinpoint who really did it. So you don't believe he did it. Well, then the final trip where where I ended up getting sent into the house and the ring, that was all on the same. That was on the same particular trip. That was all the same. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew then like this is getting worse and worse and worse. When I get back to Iowa this time, I'm going. I made the plot and plan to get out of that house and go stay with my mother in that same city. But he was showing up everywhere that I was at. You know, just intimidating. I couldn't go to school. I'm trying to put myself through college with this young baby. You know, he's showing up on the campus grounds and grabbing me up. Um, He's getting into my mom's home. While I'm sleeping, I'm waking up, he's sitting in the dark. Oh, that's so creepy. Um, A lot of very scary, very scary things. So eventually I did pack up. I had a girlfriend who was saying, come, Linnell, just come. And I left and went to Des Moines, Iowa, which is just the capital. It's like two hours away, but I knew that I had a better chance of just being out of sight, out of mind for him. Right. It was safer for you anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. When you were going through this with him... Were you telling your mother and your friends, like, this is not right. This is not a healthy marriage. I don't know what I'm going to do. Were you sharing your circumstances with other people? I, I was. I have uh-huh. other cousins. And there were other women in the in the town that were around my mom's age or a little bit younger, you know, kind of ran in her group that that just didn't like for one that he and I had even connected to begin with. Like, how did this happen? He's 10 years older than you. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't blame all of that on her because I'm 16 at that point. You know, right, right. I'm ripping and running in and out. I'm sneaking around. You know, <laughs> I'm yeah, doing some of those things. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just not knowing what I'm getting myself into. Um, so yeah, there were some um, situations that I definitely was sharing with others, and that they weren't really happy about the situation at all, and and more willing to help me hide out good and different things when needed. Good. You had a support system. I did. I did. Now, the stranger danger by then, many years had passed. But I have to add that. So in all of that brokenness, the most beautiful relationship ever came. Oh. Ever. And I walked away from this without an explanation and literally devastated two families. 
mine and his. I don't think you told me that. I didn't tell you that. You didn't tell me that. We didn't know. We were focused on some of the negatives, but I, okay. I, it just occurred to me to share how those can surface. Now, how they can surface when you think things are going okay. I met, um, I have two children. The first one, the, obviously the the ruckus in my life gave me my beautiful daughter. She, when I fled from him, she was two and um, met a beautiful man who would not only raise her as his own, but gave me my son. We were together for 15 years. And when I tell you, I pretty much walked away with one day, just like Linnell, I didn't know who I was in the relationship. I had seemingly grown up with him all through my 20s to mm-hmm. my early, I guess early 30s, and had no clue who I was as a woman. No clue whatsoever. He was the great, he is still the greatest guy ever. And I give him all the accolades I can when, you know, because of at the time when I made the decision to walk away, that was hurtful. Now I'm crushing someone else and they don't have the slightest idea, even though we're sitting down and talking about my reasons on why to go. It wasn't valid. It wasn't like he was doing anything to cause me to dislike him. I just was so in disarray as a woman on my own accord from the many years of things that I had experienced. I couldn't love him properly at all. Were you expecting abuse? Were you expecting something unhealthy? I didn't expect anything unhealthy with him because he was just, I can say though that we didn't go into the relationship even after all of that, having the proper conversations. We were both still very young at that time. Right. Um, I think I met him within like the first two to three years after I left the abusive relationship. So I'm still young and still in the young mindset. I still am, you know, I haven't done all the inner child work and know the questions to ask. I didn't have a godly platform to know to take this to the altar or whoever I'm going to pray to when my marriage gets rocky or when I feel unhappy or when, you know, just little, little things like that. Um, No real foundation yet and still or example of what love is supposed to look like. What does a healthy marriage look like? Right. That's what I was seeking. That's what I was looking for because it hadn't, it hadn't been modeled for you from as far as I can tell. So I understand how you wouldn't be aware of what to look for in, in the healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Not even a little. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I um, and I just woke up. Now, mind you, we had moved to Dallas. And yeah. During that time frame, now we moved to Dallas, and I didn't have any family here. And I just said, you know, I just, I just kept praying. When I tell you, I went into the heaviest prayer mode ever because I could feel it coming. I don't know if I just manifested in my thoughts. Like I always saw myself, even though I went through all of these things in my life that could be considered negatives, I've always saw myself as a servant, as somebody who is going to be successful, as somebody who is going to raise two beautiful children. And if she didn't fail it, if she didn't get anything else right, she was going to break these generational curses for her yes. children. Yes. And so when I when we moved here, I just I settled into Dallas like I'd always been here. Felt so familiar. I wasn't afraid of anything. And he seemingly took on a different a different role. Like whereas he was the goal the go getter there, and it could have been his difficulty settling in here. You know, this was after nine eleven. Um, you know, he could have been going through his own set of circumstances, but I didn't know as a wife to have that kind of conversation. You know, we got pregnant with my son and we hadn't even had a conversation as to whether we were completely in a relationship. We lived, he had his own house. I had my own home, Mm -hmm. you know, but we got together and and we were like a couple in our eyes, but we just didn't live together. We never communicated that. So over time, over this long time frame, I realized, man, him and the kids can go off and have a beautiful day and me and the kids can go off and have a beautiful day. But when it comes to us, him and I, the connection was like, it was, I don't know, it just seemed like it was non-existent. Like we got pregnant and we fell again back into that, that small, you know, that small state mentality. We've got to be in a relationship. Right. 
it's assumed. It's assumed. Like you have yes. to assume it. Like, oh, we're pregnant. Oh, we're in a small town. Oh, we got to be gotta in a relationship. Right, we got to do the right thing. We've got to do the right thing. We're going raise to this, raise this baby together. Yeah. You know, and when I came here and I think a lot was realized for myself, um, we had kind of, you know, took some little separation, couple of separations. I think I could feel it. I could feel it coming, but that was just my growth and my testimony building. And one day I, after praying and praying, I finally just said, I'm, I'm going. How did he take it, Linnell? He was, you know, he was very mad at me, obviously, for a while. It impacted our son greatly as well. And um, I kept trying to make him understand that rejection is it's a hard thing. But I knew that I couldn't love him properly. After a while, we were sleeping in different beds. We were just, you know, things that we were doing in Iowa. He would say, oh, go ahead and go with your friends and, and give me money to go off and do those things. Well, you couldn't just keep doing this in the city. Right. You know, a lot of a lot of things a person can get into. Yes. With idle time. Yes. So this led eventually, um, once we split, to my being put, um, I won't say this was a direct, but just some bad decision making and maybe um, not seeing things for what they were. Clearly, I ended up with my stranger danger situation. Yes. Is that our Shreveport? section? That is our Shreveport section. Yes. Okay. Well, let's go there because we've talked about two unhealthies, one Mm -hmm. healthy who I'm grateful. I'm grateful you had that even, you know, though it it came to an end. I'm glad, I'm glad that someone treated you well. And then we go. Wonderful. He showed me exactly what love, he showed me exactly what it, what it looked like. And I'm so thankful for him now. He is my best friend today. (laughs) <laughs> That's we fought sweet. to get here. <laughs> we fought to get yes, here. Yes, we did. <laughs> and you have a wonderful son together. Yes, we do. Our kids are amazing. Yes, you do. And he's very handsome. Both your kids are gorgeous, though. I just have to say that. Um, Thank you. Tell us about, I think you were newly single when Shreveport I occurred. I was. I had been in my new place, feeling good and mm-hmm. looking great. And, you know, just of have course. a girlfriend, of a girlfriend here that asked me, did I want to take a road trip with her to see a gentleman that she was seeing who was in the military and he was in Shreveport. I agreed thinking what a great, you know, that's cool. I'm always down for a good road trip with girlfriends. And I had another girlfriend who was coming here from out of state during that same time even better. She gets to see, you know, I'm sure she'll love to want to make the road trip with us, see a little bit more of this area and surrounding areas. We're going to have a ball. So we went to Shreveport, um, the girlfriend with the actual boyfriend there, you know, they, we didn't want to be all in their mix all the time. We assumed we were going to get a hotel room, but he had another friend who was interested or seemingly became, you know, a little interested in the friend that came from out of state to go with us. Yes. So over the course of our, you know, couple days there, we had a ball. You know, he offered that we could stay at his place because he had a spare bedroom versus getting um, the hotel. And we were like, okay, that's fine. And not going to lie, we're a little wild and fancy free at that time. <laughs> at that time. Yes, at that time. So, yeah. Yeah, at that time. And so the, the trip went, went beautifully. We came back to Dallas. The other friend went back to Alabama. That's where she was visiting from. And her and the guy, you know, the four of them, they were all keeping in contact. And it seemed like everybody was fine. I just, you know, kind of was that fifth wheel, but it was was fine. You know, it was cool. So some time lapsed and that friend again here in Dallas said, hey, I'm going to go back to Shreveport. Wondered if you want to make the ride with me. Yes, certainly. Let's go. We go back down again. I'm willing to go ahead and get a hotel room. Um, we've connected with, you know, them same people that were hanging out with us on the prior trip. Yes. And the the guy who was keeping up with the friend in Alabama says again, you know, you guys were comfortable at my place last time. I know your, your girl's not with you, but that room is still available. I don't use it like that, you know, or whatever the case is. And, and you know, I felt I felt OK. I felt safe. Um, Knowing trusted. that he had built, I up did. Trust. I, yep. 
He did. Yes, he did. And so we went back to his place. We all separated. We were going to be getting dressed, getting cleaned up to go to this place for dinner. And I just remember being there at his apartment. Um, The shower is across the hall. Uh, The bathroom was across the hall from the bedroom that I was using. And he was in and out, you know, he was getting his car cleaned up and doing different things. So, you know, I waited until I thought it was safe and laid my clothes out and grabbed my towel. You know, I said, I'm going to go over here and take a shower and I'll just go ahead and start getting ready. Well, I used the shower, but when I was coming back, I was going to run across the hall. You know, I was just kind of peeking down to make sure nobody was out there. And I don't know if he was already in the room or if he was just behind me that quickly. I just remember going into the room across the hall, making it across and pushing the, shutting the door. I was pretty sure I shut it completely, but my clothes were laid out. And before I could even make my next move, he pounced on me from behind. He, I mean, full body flex just jumps on my back. Ugh. And I go straight forward on the bed like like the lumberjack just yo timber. Like I just come flat down on the bed and I can feel his skin. Because um, at first I was like, what is happening? You know, and that's when I realized obviously my towel had come up a little bit. And I could feel his skin flesh to flesh on my body. And I instantly just like, Lord, this is not happening. You know, this is not happening. Um, I could feel his erection. Mm -hmm. And I knew that by his actions, he was, he didn't care where he landed. He was just going to forcefully insert himself or insert excuse me, insert himself into me. We must have wrestled, although I couldn't get off of my stomach, like just flip-flopping back and forth for what seemed like forever, where I was just clenching my entire body and just screaming out (laughs) for intervention of any kind to fight him off of me and not allow him to get where he was trying to go. There was still yet some damage because he was, like I said, he was forceful and he was very much stronger than me. But I think the reason why he didn't succeed completely is because he wasn't too far from my size. Mm-hmm. You know, he he wasn't a super, if he had been probably maybe 10 pounds, five, 10 pounds bigger, he, you know, heavier, um, or maybe it was just the adrenaline because I just wasn't. <laughs> I was not going to have it. Happen. No, no, I was uh-uh. fighting with everything in me to not allow this to happen to me. And I don't know what prompted him to just stop. But he it was like a light switch just came on after probably maybe a good five to seven minutes. We were at this. And he just snaps to, to present and just stops, stands up and walks out of the room. I just, I was frozen. Like I, by then I'm crying. I'm afraid to even let my body relax. I don't know if this is a, a game. I don't know if he's going for a weapon. I don't know what he's getting ready to do. But I then immediately thought, lock, get up, you know. Right. And so I, I was just crying at that point and thinking, oh my gosh. First off, I'm trying to, I came to and I was like, well, nobody's even called us about dinner. You know, so I'm thinking, like, where's my phone? Like, my phone hasn't rang to find out why we're running late or anything or what's going on. And so I end up in that room all night long waiting for the daylight so that or waiting to closer to daylight so that I could get help because I, I didn't think to call the police. He was in the military himself with a rank. And my first thought was, who is going to believe me? I know. I'm, I'm seeing so many parallels to your younger years in this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and how it shaped you to this moment. I mean, you know, being still like you were when you were eight, you know, being forced to into a position of, of being frightened and alone. It's like it repeated itself. And now mm-hmm. knowing that, why, why should I say anything? Mm-hmm. 
you know, I can yeah, just, this- I, I can just see how it was formed at this point. Mm-hmm. And I guess I never thought about that even just in hearing you say that the, yeah. the like you said, the parallels, I, when I had to see him, which was even worse, like my friend, you know, when I finally got to her and her and her guy and the rest, you know, the crew that was showing up and they were finding out what hat, what happened, you know, she was crying. I'm crying. She's like, do you want to leave? We can leave. I don't want to interrupt her and him. You know, I know they don't get to see each other very much. And now I've brought this here. You know, it was just, it was, um, it was a whole lot. It was a whole, whole lot to deal with. I think that's when I got to the point of where I started feeling like I needed to speak to young women, you know, mm-hmm. women overall, but I do a lot with the younger age groups and trying to help these young ladies understand how easily they can fall off into something because of it's flashy or he's never treated me like this. You know, I've never been treated like this before. Oh yeah. Or yeah, you know, and, and that was me way back at 16. So I try to, you know, you think he's your friend. He's yeah. He's talking to your girlfriend. He likes her a lot, but he might even be looking at you. Just pay it. You got to pay attention. Right. I never thought to do any of those things while he was canoodling with my girlfriend. Right. It wasn't on your radar. It was not on my radar. But then you will invite me right back and set me up for failure. Yeah. He was a predator. Absolutely. He was a predator. You're teaching me a lot here um, because I'm thinking of things now that I need to teach my near 11-year-old daughter. Yes. About speaking up, about if something doesn't feel right, you say something, you seek out somebody else. Don't worry about what they're going to think. About calling the police, about reporting it. You know, Mm -hmm. so many of these incidents have gone underreported or not reported Mm -hmm. because people are afraid to say what happened. They are. They are. Um, And this is, you know, from men, women, and children. Men, I think, are afraid to say something because they... It's a masculinity type thing. Like, yes. what do you mean you're being abused? Yeah. She did what? Why didn't you smack her? You know what I mean? Like, they get that. It's a machismo. Is it the word machismo? I don't know if that's the word. I, right. You know, but. Works for me. It's, yeah. You know, it's that thing. And they are, they're out there going through it just as much. And I've seen that firsthand and it shocked me. Like, this woman is really abusing her husband. Mm-hmm. Black eye and everything. Like, you know, this is, women really are out of here like that. They are, there are. People hurt people. Mm-hmm. They do. One in nine men are um, abused, physically abused and emotionally abused. It's not that uncommon. That could be a whole other episode because that needs to be mm-hmm. talked about too. Yeah. Um, yeah. We- so how did you find the courage after these events in your life to move upward and onward. How did you go? You know what? I'm going to change things. I want it was a certain type of future my, for myself, and this is what I have to do to achieve it. Yeah, it was always. I always had the ability to look at how my mother's life has turned out, and I don't say that being. I love. I love and absolutely adore this woman. My heart breaks that she had to live a life like that and not know love in full from, you know, or, or be able to recognize it, you know, be able to really recognize you can be loved. But do you recognize that? Because you self-sabotage just like I did. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. so my my drive and my want to be better was to make sure that my kids did not have to endure. I like my daughter is absolutely gorgeous. She was beautiful from the small, I mean, she's beautiful from very young, you know, um, and I always watched her and, you know, worried about that. What could she find herself in? I didn't think about it until older and learning that men go through it as much about, you know, even though I kept a close eye on both of them, sure. but it was my kids that pushed me that I wanted to have a different lifestyle. People that I know that have been severely abused and not able to recover from that, they're, you know, the ones I know up close and personal, they, they live much differently by the way 
they carry themselves by the way their home homes are kept. Yeah. You know, just by the things they've they've gone through, it seems like a, a struggle situation all the time. Yes, that's when history repeats itself. That's when history mm-hmm. repeats itself and no one is breaking the cycle. You broke a cycle. You broke it. Right. And that's what I what my aim was. I didn't want my kids to to live in that mindset, you know. Yeah. To have Good that mindset you. and shape their future like that. Yeah. And now you have two amazing children who are amazingly healthy. So good job. Mm-hmm. Good job, mom. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> you wanted to make it different for them. So, and let me just brag on your daughter. Can I brag real quick? You can. <laughs> She's a model for Neiman Marcus here in Dallas, and she takes amazingly beautiful photos. Yeah, she is something special. Neiman Marcus and Oh my gosh, she's done so many campaigns. We have done well here in Dallas with her modeling career. And I lived through her because that was my dream Mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're growing up in this rural area and it's not like scouts or, I mean, you just have to be in the right place at the right time. I'm not saying it can't, it's impossible. Yeah, I don't think Iowa's a mecca for modeling. I think you're right on that. Dallas is probably better. Yeah, you have to pull a. I'm going to California with five hundred dollars. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's all I got. I'm going, y'all. Yeah, that's all I got. But well, we've done well here in Dallas. Well, yeah. What advice do you have for other men, men and women, who are going through what you have been through? What do you tell them today? I tell them today, you have the absolute power to change your circumstances. First of all, recognize that you are the only one with your fingerprint, the only one, priceless, priceless. You're the only one with your fingerprint. There's no one else like you. You're so unique. You're so fearfully and wonderfully made. No one deserves the right to belittle you or treat you in a way that's less than than just righteous overall. (laughs) You know, you have to know your worth. And you're unstoppable once you recognize that. My book is called The Power of Broken Things. And I liken that to even a shard of glass can cause damage. And that's what we are as broken things. So don't stop, you know, thinking that you're stuck in a place and you're worthless and a lot of things that you hear from these people who who do try to abuse you because you can do miraculous things if you just set your mind to it. That's what I would tell them. I think those are beautiful words. And I love how you're saying you are your own fingerprint. It's up to you to make changes. And you're the, only, you're the only, you're the only you, no one else is like you and you can, that's it. you can get out of it. So, and I love the fact that you're so confident and you believe in everything that you've done, everything that you're doing. So, um, mm-hmm. okay, Linnell, how can people get connected with you if they, if they want you for a speaking event or um, to be on their shows, uh, sure. or, or just to get to know you better? How can people find you? Well, I would love to give you that information. So if you go on Instagram, you will find me L, at L Renfro Falk. That's L and then R-E-N-F-R-O-F-A-U-L-K. My personal website is the same, www.lrenfrofalk.com. My email for any speaking engagements, any inquiries um, that you could want to make is EmpowerU, but just the letter U. So it's E-M-P-O-W-E-R-U at lrenfrofolk.com. Let me see what else we got here. Of course, on Facebook, you can find... um, L. Renfro Falk. I mean, that's almost me across yeah, the board. So is. I have a podcast as well called Life is Potpourri. And that's the page you will go to um, for that, L. Renfro Falk. But I think uh, I think that's that's it. You can hit Holly up and say, hey, yes. who is that? I need to talk to her. I have <laughs> I her on. I that. have her on. Um, <laughs> on auto call. I can get you real quick. Like I know how to get her. I know how to find all of that. Yes. I just appreciate all of, um, all of the support. I really hope you'll be, you know, others will be looking for my first solo project with my book. Yes. Um, tell us again what it's called. Say it again. So it's called the power, the power of broken things. Of course, it'll be on Amazon and in Barnes and Noble. Perfect. um, Perfect. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, you've been very inspiring today. And I, 
I learned more about you today. And I just yes. love how you have persevered and you've gone on to raise two amazing kids and have an amazing career and be a leader in the community, Linnell. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying out here. Y'all just keep praying for me. <laughs> we will. We will. I have no doubt. I have no doubt, Miss Linnell. All righty, GTFO listeners, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us today and cheers until next time. Thank you for joining me today on the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. To connect with me for confidence coaching or speaking engagements, please connect with me at hollykaplan.com or find me on Instagram at GTFO underscore podcast. Thanks. Thanks.